He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not declared righteous by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be declared righteous by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no man be declared righteous not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Before we get into our text this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that we have this time just to reflect upon your word We come to understand it, not just in terms of these specific verses that we're studying, but how it correlates to all of your revelation, that we may come to understand more fully who we are in Christ, who we are as believers, who we are in light of all that you have given us in this church age, that our ultimate purpose is to serve you and to glorify you in all that we say, all that we think, all that we do. And in order for that to be true, we have to have a transformation of our thinking. We have to learn to think as you would have us to think, that we can make the, have the priorities that you would have us to have, and that we can make the decisions and live out our lives in a way that is consistent with the thinking that we have in Christ. So, Father, we pray today that as we study your word, that God the Holy Spirit will use it to challenge us to shape us, to sanctify us, that we might come to be uh, walk more closely with you and that the character of Christ might be formed in us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're continuing our study. And actually, I forgot to change this slide. We are in verses 8 and 9. I didn't change that number. Where Paul says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now, when he says this, he is talking about this walking in the light in a particular context, a context that began in Ephesians 4 and goes down to uh, chapter 6, verse 9, where the focus is on how we walk. And that is just a metaphor for how we think. First of all, it all, the Christian life begins between your ears. It begins with our thoughts. It not only begins with what we think, but how we think. And if you look out in the world today, you see all kinds of really bizarre things going on. And you see that, that these thoughts, these ideas, everything from uh, the recent horrible anti-Semitic demonstrations that we have seen to uh, things that are happening with parents who are thinking that when their child starts to, let's say their boy starts to play with dolls or their little girl starts to play with uh, uh, cowboy pistols or something, that all of a sudden uh, they're not really a girl, they're a boy. They're not really a boy, they're a girl. Where did this transgender craziness come from? This idea that your sexual identity is not related to your biological sexual identity. What are the roots of this? Well, those are the things that we see. If you remember the iceberg illustration that I've used, those are surface issues. Nine-tenths of an iceberg is below the surface. Nine-tenths of these issues are below the surface. One-tenth is above the surface. That's what we're looking at with these issues. There's Uh, 90% of what's going on is beneath the surface, and it has to do with how we think. That many people in our country and in Western civilization and indeed around the world have bought into a pagan worldview, a pagan worldview that begins with the idea that there is no God and that there there is no creation, there is just 
uh, uh, evolution. That's the uh, that's the development of uh, animals and humans and all life forms just by chance, with over lengthy periods of time. Just an evolutionary process. There's no God. If there's no God, there's no meaning in life. It's just an accident. And so we treat people just accidental. There are no absolutes in life. There's no absolute right or wrong. There's no absolute truth. And as we have studied, as we've gone through Ephesians 4 and now in Ephesians 5, that one of the key ideas in the Christian way of life is that it is based on truth. It is based on absolute truth that is grounded on the eternal existence of the unique God of the Bible. Uh, who says, I alone am God. There is no other. Again and again, this is said uh, in books like uh, the Old Testament book of Isaiah. God says this to Israel many times. He alone is God, and he is the creator. He made all things. That is a foundational claim of the Bible. In fact, everything that you find in the Bible is predicated on God as the creator God and the redeemer God. And so we have started our study of understanding light uh, in the past by last week by looking at the fact that Scripture says that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. These are the starting points of our thinking. Uh, They should inform the assumptions or the presuppositions that we have about life. And these assumptions and presuppositions are the basic... uh, A lot of it is just the basic facts of what we learn in Scripture. And we see that as the way that Paul has laid out this epistle. There are basically three divisions, as we reviewed last time. You get the facts in the first three chapters. Uh, This describes the wealth of every believer, what God has provided for us. In Ephesians 1.3, Paul says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. That's our wealth. That's what we have. That's our status. That's our bank account. We have every spiritual blessing, and we have to learn what they are so that we can live in light of them, so that we can make decisions in light of them. If we're ignorant of the blessings, the assets, the uh, various uh, skills that God has provided for us in the Christian life, then we're, we're, we're going to be failures in the Christian life. We're never going to see and understand how God can work in our life. So Ephesians starts with the wealth of the believer in the first three chapters, and then that should be the walk from 4.1 to 6.9. And the walk of the believer is how we walk in terms of wisdom. The central passage really comes up in about 5.15 down to 6.9. But back in chapter 4, the focus is on this fact that we have a new identity. We are a new creature in Christ. It's called the new man. And because we have already, it's never translated correctly based on the grammar, because we are already have put on the new man, we have a new identity and we are to live a certain way in accordance with that identity. And that's what chapters 4, 5, down to 6, 9 are all about. And then we have the warfare from 6.10 to 6.20. So in this walk section, starting in Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. The calling with which we are called is our new identity. That's who we are. That's, you know, the old Latin word was vocare, vocation. We all have a calling, a vocation in life. That has to do with our new identity in Christ. And so we are to walk in a manner that brings honor to that calling and to live in a way that brings glory to God. And uh, Ephesians 5.2, this is also described, uh, again, as walking by means of love. And the pattern is Christ. Notice you have this word as. We are to walk by means of love as Christ also has loved you. So that's a pattern. We are to reflect his love for us. It's demonstrated at the cross uh, in the way in which we think. Uh, We've studied in Philippians 2 on Thursday night within the last six months about Christ thinking that 
that he was not self-absorbed or self-focused, where he was grasping after his own rights as God. Uh, He came to the earth. He humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, and going to the cross in obedience to God. And so that's the love that the Bible talks about. It is, as we read earlier in Galatians 5.22, it is a fruit of the Spirit. It is something supernatural that God, the Holy Spirit, develops in us. An unsaved person can only imitate that, but it is, I mean, the biblical view of love, Jesus says, is the mark of a disciple. And that's what he told his disciples in John 13, 34, and 35. He said, I give you a new command that you love one another as I have loved you. And all will know that you are my disciple if you have love for one another. So this is a distinctive aspect, but you can't just gin up this love because you're supposed to be loving. It's something that has to be generated within us over time through the Holy Spirit. It doesn't happen just right away. The spiritual life takes a lot of time. It We grow slowly. Often, I've heard some people say it's three steps forward and two steps back. No, it's more like three steps forward and 2.99 steps back. We are slow to learn. God calls us sheep, and that's not a compliment. Sheep don't learn things very quickly, and so they need a shepherd. But see, the shepherds are called sheep too, so we're not much brighter than anybody else. We still have to struggle with all the same spiritual struggles. So uh, positively, we're told that we are to walk by means of love, and the pattern is Christ. We look at other passages in Paul, and in Romans 6, 4, he says we are to walk in newness of life. That's just another way of talking about this new life we have, this new identity, which is what he develops starting in the next couple of verses, that because we have been uh, baptized by means of the Holy Spirit and identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, we're a new creation. And we need to live in light of that creation. In Romans 8, 4, he says that uh, uh, we are to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, one of the things I want you to pay attention to as we go through this is that as we go through these various passages in Scripture, we're going to see that there's only two options. We either walk according to the Spirit or we don't. There's not this kind of idea that we have one foot in obedience and one foot in disobedience, like we do the right thing for the wrong reasons. I've heard preachers say, you know, we often do things the right thing for um, the the wrong motive. Well, then it's sin. You know, right thing done in a wrong way is still wrong. It's got to be done the right way. And all through the Scripture, I, I keep wanting to raise my hand and say, well, wait a minute, could you give me a passage where we can do something with mixed motives and it's okay? Because there aren't any. And again and again and again, it's light versus darkness. We're supposed to walk in the light, and we are to uh, conduct our lives in the light, not in the darkness. And uh, I use this illustration a lot. You've ever been in a cavern deep underground in... Um, uh, Wonder Cave here in Texas or Longhorn Caverns or Carlsbad Caverns or any of the others, and you go way down deep, and they turn off all the lights, and you're just in dense pitch black darkness. But somebody just strikes a match, and you can see everything. It's either light or darkness. There's no in-between, and so we have to pay attention to that. And we're either doing things the way God said to do them, and the right way... It, And it's not just doing the right thing, it's doing it the right way. So we are to walk according to the Spirit, not according to the sin nature. Romans 13, 13, Paul says, let us walk properly as in the day, in other words, in the light. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 3, I've straightened out the translation a little bit. In the New King James and the King James, some of the other translations, it says, are you not fleshly or are you not carnal? and living like mere men. This is the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and they have caught the thrust of that idiom. 
It's literally, it, it's a walking according to the way of men. But what he's saying is, and as they've translated it, are you not fleshly and living like an unbeliever? And that's the contrast. Christians can still live like an unbeliever. They can think like an unbeliever. It takes a long time to stop thinking like an unbeliever. And if you're not being taught the word and you're just being exhorted to do what you should do, uh, which is what most sermons are, uh, if they're even close to being biblical, the rest of them just aren't biblical. But if you aren't learning and letting the Word of God really get into your thinking, then you're not going to grow very much because that's that, as we see, is the basis. Second Corinthians four two says, um, "But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the Word of God deceitfully." Now I'm not going to go into a long list; it takes all morning of all the people on television who are teaching false doctrine. They're not teaching the Word. They're handling the Word of God deceitfully in prosperity, theology, name it, claim it, all these other things. Um, But we are to manifest the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's how we are to, to walk. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith and not by sight. So here in... Uh, Ephesians 5, 8 through 10, which we started last time, Paul says, and I translate it y'all because it's a plural. That way you realize he's talking to this congregation, this group of believers in Ephesus, and he says, y'all were once darkness. He's already gone through this talking about how they were saved, that it starts off in Ephesians chapter 2, that they were spiritually dead. at the very beginning, but God made them alive together in Christ and raised them and seated them together with him. And there uses the the pronoun us because it's true for every single believer. We're once darkness, but now we are light in the Lord, not just light, but we're light in the Lord. That in the Lord is very important to understand that we do not have light apart from the Lord, a light in the Lord and that's our position, which we'll develop in a minute. And we walk are to walk as children of light. And then he explains what the results of that are. That's described as fruit. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. We'll get that far tonight. We won't, I mean, this morning we won't get to verse 10. But we do that by evaluating uh, things to determine what is acceptable or pleasing to the Lord. Now, there's three things we need to understand as sort of background. What does all of Scripture say about this uh, in order to understand the significance of this light metaphor? First is what we started last time, what the Bible teaches about light. This is part of numerous passages that we're not going through all of them. That would take a couple of weeks. Uh, that that inform us as to the, the significance of light, not just as a physical phenomena that was created by God on the first day and then separated from darkness, but that it is used metaphorically or as a as a symbol for numerous things in the Scripture. So once we learn about that overview of what the Bible teaches about light, then Second, we need to understand what the Bible teaches about our position in the light, our new position. He says we are light. What does that mean? And then third, then he goes on to say walk in the light. So there's a distinction made between you are light, our new identity, our new position in Christ, and walking in the light. So you can uh, be light and walk in darkness. A lot of Christians have trouble with that. Christians since the second century have struggled with sin in the post-salvation life of a Christian, and often they slip into legalism and other problems because they just have such... We all have a struggle with sin, and some people just uh, distort it all. They don't really understand the scriptural teaching very well. So last week we started this on what the Bible teaches about light, life, and darkness. And I'm not going to go through all those points, but I want to hit the high points. First of all, we saw that light is used as a metaphor 
to describe the essence that is the character of God, his essential being. First John 1 says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That's First John 1, 5. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So God, and then later it talks about the fact that God dwells in unapproachable light in First Timothy 6, 16. This is phenomenal to reflect on this. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. This is used as a, as a picture of his righteousness, his justice, and that he, therefore he cannot have any relationship with a creature that is not, um, not also light. And by relationship, I mean a certain intimacy. He can have a relationship in a different level as he does with Satan and the fallen angels. We know that they show up in various convocations in heaven because they have not been permanently assigned to the lake of fire yet. But it is not the kind of relationship or intimacy that we are talking about here. When I got down to the sixth point, I said specifically light then describes more specifically the facets or components of God's integrity. This is the combination of his righteousness, his justice, and truth. And we see these combined in several different verses. Psalm 89.14, the psalmist says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. Loving kindness and truth go before thee. So the foundation of something is that upon which everything God does rests. All that he is all that he does rests on this integrity of his righteousness and his justice. And then what flows from him in dealing with his creation and his creatures is this loving kindness. His, the Hebrew word is chesed, which has the idea of faithful, loyal love, loyalty to a covenant, loyalty to his revelation, and truth, absolute truth. He defines truth. He creates truth. Truth is reality as God has defined it. And so anything that doesn't conform to that truth is in the realm of falsehood and thus in the realm of darkness. Uh, in Psalm 89.15, he says, How blessed are the people who know, thy, uh, know the joyful sound, O Lord. They walk in the light of your countenance. So we walk in the light of God's countenance. That's all that he is, his essence, as it were. Then in verse 8, I did a summary, and I said, summarizing the first seven points, light represents the totality of the divine essence with special emphasis on his righteousness, justice, truth, and the illumination and guidance which God's revelation in the Bible provides for life. The psalmist says that God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So it, it, God's revelation comes from the core of his being, so it reflects his light and it illuminates our thinking so that we can think according to reality, so we can think according to truth, so that we can have discernment and true, true wisdom in life. In the ninth point, I said the light of God is related to life itself. This is fascinating because we don't necessarily think of this as an integral relationship between light and life, but in God it is. Psalm 36, 9 says, for with you is the fountain of life. And then the next, uh, the next phrase expands that. In your light, we see light. The light is related to this fountain of life. You have to have life in the Lord to have light and to understand the light. So we see truth and we understand truth only as it is illuminated by God's word. We can understand the details of life only as we submit that understanding to God's revelation. The starting point is always God, who he is, and then God, what has he said? And then on that foundation, we're able to address the other questions in life. 
But if we don't start with God, then we're starting in our own opinion. We're making ourselves our own authority. And so we're starting at an extremely weak spot of of almost infinite ignorance. And that's what we see a lot going on today. People have all kinds of opinions, but it's just whatever they think is true. And they fail to understand that that even the brightest human being that ever lived only has an infinitesimally small amount of knowledge compared to the uh, universal knowledge of an omniscient God who knows all of the knowable. And so we look at things and we say, well, I don't like what God did here, so there must not be a God. Well, you know so much? You know everything there is to know about this situation, every thought, every motive, every intent of everybody's uh, minds and what's going on. You know the future results. You know the past. You know everything. To, To judge God and evaluate his decisions on the basis of our finite knowledge is just the height of arrogance. We have to think, well, I just don't know enough, so I have to trust God. Tenth point, we saw that Jesus is said to be both life and light of mankind in John 1, 4. John says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. That's a major theme in the Gospel of John. Later, Jesus claims to be the light of the word. He, he said, I am the light of the world. John 1, 9, uh, John writes that that the logos, the word that he had introduced in the first five verses, was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. What an audacious statement to say of anyone, any person that's just a human being, that they are the true light and they give light to everyone else. So either John is lying or he's deceived or he's telling the truth. It doesn't look like he's lying or deceived. So we have to assume that he is telling the truth. He knows what he's talking about. And in John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them again, and that is the large crowd, and he says, I am the light of the world. Again, a very audacious statement if it's not true. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So our life is illuminated by the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. He is the Word of God in terms of the living Word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. And then the written Word of God is an expression of his thinking. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16. We have the mind of Christ, talking about God's revelation. But there's a false life light, and that is Satan. He is the master counterfeiter, and he counterfeits truth, counterfeits life, counterfeits Jesus, and counterfeits revelation. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says, no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into the ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So if Satan can transform himself into a minister of light and his his demons can transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, how are you going to tell the difference? Where do you get the information? How do you have the discernment to know the difference? How it makes you feel? I don't think so. You have to know the Word of God. It's always measured against the truth of God's Word. So in summary, from last time, we saw that God is light. Second, we saw Jesus is the light of the world. Third, that Jesus' light brings life into the world. Light and life are connected and dispel the darkness. We saw, uh, fourth, that the darkness rejects the light, that Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. And then later in John 3, John writes that that, um, men love the darkness rather than the light. And so they rejected him. Fifth, we see, but the one who comes to the light becomes a son of the light, and we are not to abide in darkness. And then last, that Satan is the master counterfeiter of light. So moving forward, 15, since God is light, and this goes back to point one, 1 John 1, 5, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 
we are to live our lives in the light to have fellowship with one another. Now, what does this word fellowship mean? See, a lot of times, and I ju- I'm just belaboring this because it, this comes up in conversation time and time again with people who I thought were listening, either online or here, or pastors that listen, and we come. I say, no, 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 no. We have to go back. Fellowship is not social interaction. Fellowship is not social interaction between believers. A lot of people think that. Well, let's go out after church. We'll have lunch and have good fellowship. Well, that's not the way the Bible uses the word koinonia. It has to do with a partnership where two people are walking together toward a common goal. That's what partnership is. When we are having and when we are in fellowship with God, that means God's objectives for our life are at that moment the our objectives for our life. We're in an intimate partnership to go in the same direction to accomplish the same goal. And that's what it means when you have Christian fellowship. Christ is at the center of it. You can go out to lunch after church and have Christian fellowship, or you can just go out to after and have social interaction. The difference would be that at somehow in the midst of your conversations and your relationship at lunch is you're talking about the word. You're you're focusing somehow in some way in a, maybe a secondary aspect of the fact that what you have together and why you are together is because of Christ has done for all of you at the table, and that is what is the foundation and the center of your your time together. It is Christological. Christ, it is Christ-centered, Christological and Christocentric. So we read in 1 John 1, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And on the one hand, there's a conditional clause, there's contrast in the first chapter. The first is example one. If we say or if we claim that we have this partnership with God and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. doesn't mean we're not saved. It means you're just not applying the word. And that's true for many of us in much of our days. We just go through situations and circumstances where we uh, get angry, frustrated, tired, whatever it may be, and we become slip back into self-absorption, and we're just not applying the Word, and we're walking in darkness. The contrast is, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, Earlier we read in um, at the beginning of Ephesians 5 that we are to walk in love as Christ loved the church. And in verse 8 of this chapter that we're studying, we are to walk as children of light. And here we are to walk as he is in the light. That's the point of comparison. Our standard is, is the character of God, the character of Christ. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. This this ratchets that term up pretty well. We have fellowship. We have this intimate partnership with one another. And the blood of Christ, an idiom for the death of Christ, cleanses us from all sin. That's why 1 John 1, 9 is there, because when we confess our sins, why, are, why does God forgive us? Because what he said in verse 7, that Christ's death is the basis for our ongoing uh, cleansing from sin. Now, in this next section I want to talk about in relation to light is how it relates to our position, our new identity in relationship to God's light. So this is the 16th point. Light is used as a metaphor for the kingdom of God in a universal sense. This isn't the messianic kingdom. In the Old Testament, God was the king of Israel. So you have those passages. You can't take those passages and apply them to the church. God as the sovereign creator has the, that's a universal kingdom. That's not the same as the messianic kingdom. And so it's a metaphor for the kingdom of God. It's used from the beginning all through because God is light and dwells in unapproachable light. And the plan of God is also part of the light. And that's in contrast to darkness, which is used as a metaphor for Satan 
for Satan's domain and for carnality, sin, and evil. In Acts 26, 18, Paul talking about uh, taking the gospel uh, to the unsaved says to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. Since Satan's fall, there have been two, as it were, kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Satan is the head of the kingdom of darkness, God the head of the kingdom of light. So we have this, this. We are to turn from the kingdom of darkness. We're all born in the kingdom of darkness. We're born spiritually dead and alienated from the life of God, as Paul has said earlier in uh, Ephesians 2.1 and also in Ephesians uh, 4.18. So we are to turn from the uh, darkness to the dominion of Satan. In Colossians 1.13, Paul writes, For he delivered us, that is, Christ delivered us, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Now, this is talking about the same thing. This is not talking about the messianic kingdom that comes when Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation and establishes kingdom on the earth in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and, and, and promises. What we have to do is think about this in a systematic way, that when you are dealing with people in the world around you, uh, some of the people you deal with are in the domain of darkness. They think in the domain of darkness, they act and they emote according to the standards of the domain of darkness. Some of the people you deal with are believers. They are light, but they're not walking in the light. They're walking in darkness. They're living like the unbelievers who are in the domain of darkness. And the only ones that you can probably have compatibility with are those that are walking in the light, those who understand the Word of God and think according to the Word of God. And so when you shake your head and you say, well, I just can't understand why these people are doing what they're doing, uh, it reflects a little bit of a failure to recognize they're doing exactly what their nature is leading them to do, to be rebellious against the absolutes of God. Uh, we have gone through many studies on the divine institutions. These are, as it were, social laws that God has embedded within the creation of the human race. The first three were instituted before the fall. They were designed for the a benefit for the prosperity of the human race. Uh, responsible choice is number one. Built on that is marriage. Marriage without responsibility is a failure. So you have responsible choice, then you have marriage. Purpose of marriage, one purpose of marriage is to produce children and to be the teaching and training ground of the future. That's family. All of those are built on responsible choice. They were all instituted before sin entered into human history. Then after the Noahic flood, because that everything that man did leading up to the flood turned out to be horrible and rebellious, and the thoughts of man's heart, the Scripture says, were evil continuously. And so now in order to have some sort of internal restraint on evil, God instituted human government. And that was done ultimately through delegating the responsibility to adjudicate and punish murderers. So that is uh, that comes along. And then we have the fifth divine institution, which was uh, creating nations. So internationalism, globalism are excluded by biblical nationalism. And then we have Israel, the creation God created Israel, and those who bless Israel, believer or unbeliever, those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who oppose Israel will be cursed, judged harshly. Every one of those divine institutions is under worldwide assault today. Just think about that. When you read the news, when you watch the news, think in terms of the divine institutions and these things that are going on in uh, elementary school classrooms where they want to keep parental authority away from the children. That's a violation of the divine institution of family, a usurpation of the family's authority. 
you have things that are going on in relationship to marriage. We have a lower divorce rate today than we did 30 or 40 years ago. That's not because people are having better marriages. It's they're not getting married. They're just living together. And so you have uh, all this uh, sexual immorality that is taking place today. That's a violation of the second divine institution. All kinds of things that are happening with regard to criminality, the ignoring of laws. So part of our responsible choice would apply to governing officials, and we have governing officials that are ignoring law. Just look at the hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants that are flooding across the border, and the federal government is doing nothing about it. And that's going to have horrendous consequences for our nation in in the future. You know, so those first three divine institutions are being wiped out, and everybody, all these companies, uh, international companies, are all into globalism. That's a violation of the fifth divine institution. I skipped over human government. I don't have time. It is under assault from every direction. And Israel, who would have thought 10 years ago even that an attack by Hamas against Israel would result in street demonstrations, riots, and violence in this country favoring Hamas and anti-Israel? Every one of the divine institutions are under attack, and that's because they're in, these people are in the do- domain of darkness. Their thinking is the domain of darkness. They're acting in darkness. So, so when we shake our heads and say, why are they doing what they're doing? We have to say, well, this is their nature. Only with the Word of God are you going to see a difference. So we have to understand what it means that we are light, and this is the second point I'm bringing out. Uh, what the Bible teaches about our position in the light. This is our new position, uh, according to Ephesians. We're in Christ. We're in the body of Christ. Uh, God the Holy Spirit is, uh, is building a new temple. We have these phrases, there's a new man, a new body, uh, a new building. Uh, this is all talking about this new entity that came into existence on the day of Pentecost in 33 AD. And because it came into existence, we had this whole new spiritual entity called the church age believer. So I'm going to put this up in a chart, help us grab it, understand it. So when we follow the command of Acts 16.31 and we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, instantly we are going to be identified with Christ's death on the cross. As a result of that, we have two new spheres of reality. The one on the left will be describing our eternal reality, what's true for us in terms of our identity in Christ that is always ours. On the right will be the temporal realities, our experience, our day-to-day experience. So we'll start with just on the left. I make this uh, this a white circle because it's describing our new position as light. So we are in the light. And the way we get in the light is through the baptism by the Holy Spirit when we are identified instantly. with When we trust in Christ, we are instantly identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. Identification is the purpose of baptism. We're identified with Christ by the Holy Spirit. We're placed in Christ. And this is called positional truth. That means it's our new position, our new legal position before God. Paul says, now you are light in the Lord. That's who we are. We're light. The next point is, but in our experience, we still walk or think, talk, live, either in the light or in darkness. And a baby believer has zero information, so they're going to continue after they trust in Christ to walk in the darkness because they don't know anything. And that's why you can look at a lot of people and say, well, I just can't believe they're a Christian. And and they are. They just never learned anything, or if they learned it, they, they ignored it and forgot it. So this is where we start with our eternal realities. We're in Christ. 
And the second circle is also white because we are to walk in the light. And this is energized by God the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit will fill us. We'll study this when we get down to Ephesians 5.18. But what he does is when we're walking by the Spirit, which is the command in Galatians 5.16, when we're walking by the Spirit, he fills us with his word. And so we are walking as children of light. When we sin, we're going to be outside of that circle and walking in darkness. I don't have that part of the chart up here uh, this morning, but uh, these are the two realities. We are light on the left. That's our new identity. And we are to walk in the light. That's the right. That's our day-to-day experience. First John 1, 5, we read, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So when we sin, we can't have continue fellowship with God because he is light. There's no darkness there. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. One or the other, either or, that's how it is presented. In our passage, We're told we were once darkness, that's our position as unbelievers, but now we are light in the Lord, our new identity in Christ. As such, our responsibility, going back to the first divine institution of responsible choice, is that we are to walk as children of light. That implies that we can also walk in darkness. See, that's a real problem for some Christians. You will run into a lot of preachers, pastors, teachers who think, well, if you're living your life in darkness, then you can't really be saved. But that's not what the text is saying. And the text is saying, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, it doesn't go on to say you're not really saved. It says you lie and you're not practicing the truth. So under point 18, we're not to partner, that is, to we're not to have any fellowship with the works of darkness, but we're to expose them. Now, we'll get to that next week. We're to expose them. Ephesians 5.11 says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. So you see, this goes up to verse 13. We're only starting in verse 8. That's why we need this background of light and darkness to be able to think our way through what Paul is saying. Matthew 5.14, the Lord said, you are light in the world. Again, he's talking to his disciples. This, of course, is before the cross. But this same idea was true even before the cross. He says, you are the light of the world. That's your position, their new identity. He said, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So that's his short parable, short analogy. And then in verse 16, let your light so shine before men. See, that's the experience. Paul says you are light, walk as children of light. Jesus says you're the light of the world, let your light shine before men. That's your uh, temporal reality, your experience. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Okay, so that brings us through the first two points. Uh, And that has to do with understanding what the Scripture teaches about light and life and darkness. And the second point, which talks about understanding our position in Christ and how that is different from our experience, our day-to-day walk. Next time, we're going to get into understanding what the Scripture says about our walk in the light. How do we walk in the light and what's the result of that? That gets into the next verse. And since that starts off with a textual problem, I don't have time to deal with that this morning. So we're going to stop here. And next time we'll come back to look at Ephesians 5, 9, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth.
So that, I believe, is comparable to what Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says in terms of the fruit of the Spirit, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank thank you so much for today that we can come together and be challenged in terms of how we think, how we live, how we walk. This walking metaphor includes every aspect of, of our life and that we should submit this to the authority of Scripture, to what Scripture says, tells us, and how we should live, but so often we fail. But in your grace, you've provided for that, and you've provided a way of recovery, and you've provided a way where we can uh, grow and mature. But this is in the light of your word. As our Lord prayed in his prayer before he went to the cross, Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Your word is truth. So, Father, we pray that we will all respond to this challenge of Scripture to think more uh, precisely more and more depth about what's going on between our ears and how that relates to your, your revelation. Father, we pray for anyone who's listening that uh, they might come to understand that you have provided everything for us. You've provided the solution to the big problem that everyone faces in life, which is sin. Uh, sin has separated us from you. We are alienated from your life. We're uh, alienated from light. We're alienated from truth. And so, Father, it is only when we come to you on the basis of what Christ did on the cross, believing that he died for us, paid the sin penalty, uh, raised from the dead, and that uh, through faith in his work on the cross, we have everlasting life. That's it. We don't have to improve our lives. We don't have to reform. We don't have to go through emotional gyrations, feel sorry for our sins or anything else. We simply have to believe, to trust in Jesus Christ's work on the cross, and we have everlasting life. So we pray that that gospel will be clear to any listening, any who are listening online or now or in the future and that we might all be um, encouraged and strengthened in our own faith, knowing what you have provided for us at that instant of salvation. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.